This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. In light of our ever-evolving landscape of COVID-19 testing, uh, we're going to do this bonus episode in updating the community about this trending topic. Today, we're rounding again with Dr. Matt Benneker, the Director of Clinical Virology and Vice Chair of Practice in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Benneker. Happy to be here, Dr. Carter. So let's start off with, can you kind of take us through, why does this landscape of COVID testing uh, seem so dynamic? I mean, for many people, we think about it in terms of we got a DNA test, we got an antibody test, and then we got this rapid test, right? Can you kind of take us through this evolving landscape? Sure. I think the, the first thing that I you know, re-emphasize is that the pandemic has only been with us for six to seven months. So, so much has been learned, so much progress has been made in a really short amount of time. We went from six months ago not having any routine diagnostic tests for uh, COVID to now over a hundred different options in regards to molecular testing and serology testing. So it's it truly been a, a remarkable feat to sit back and watch and participate in. As you mentioned, there's testing that falls into a number of different categories. The most common laboratory tool that's been used for uh, COVID diagnostic testing is molecular or real-time PCR has been the most common uh, method that falls into that category. Those tests have been used for upfront diagnosis of patients. And as we can talk about, have also been used um, to serially test patients over time. The second category are the serology tests. And those are really intended to get an idea of how many people in a population have been exposed uh, to the virus. And also to identify individuals who might be candidates for convalescent plasma therapy. Now we're starting to see an emergence of more rapid uh, and point of care testing. So there will be options for PCR-based tests that can be performed in less than 30 minutes. Um, there has been a few options. We'll continue to start to see that expand throughout the course of the year. And then another field that's gaining a lot of interest are rapid antigen-based tests. And so th those are tests that are uh, looking for viral protein or antigen in a sample instead of the virus's RNA. Now, historically, antigen-based tests like for flu or RSV have kind of fallen out of favor because they're a lot less sensitive than PCR. But um, given supply chain challenges with PCR testing for COVID, um, and as we'll talk about some challenges with interpretation and in patients who have tested positive for long periods of time, there's some discussion of whether we can use antigen testing in certain scenarios for COVID. So, so a lot of changing. So yeah, I, I wonder since we got our new kid on the block there, that antigen test, and I think I heard you say that was a rapid uh, test. And so it sounds like we have two sort of rapid tests that are on the market now, the DNA-based uh, PCR test and the rapid PCR test and the antigen test. 
could we maybe dive into that a little bit so that we can understand so our clinicians and laboratorians uh, and students listening can kind of appreciate, again, a little bit of the compare and contrast between those two rapid assays? Sure. So the, the rapid molecular tests, probably the one that most have heard about is the Abbott ID now. Uh, it's the quick you know, five to 10 minute molecular test. Uh, that one's been available for, for several months. There are going to be a number of other options coming out uh, over the course of the next few months that again are PCR based, but they can give results in less than 20 minutes. Those typically have sensitivities um, comparable to a, a lab-based PCR. Sometimes you sacrifice sensitivity for speed. So uh, for example, the Abbott ID Now assay has shown to be a little less sensitive than the lab-based PCRs early on in the pandemic, although there are some improvements being made to that test. But again, those can be performed on the same types of samples, give results in less than 20 minutes and, and achieve accuracies uh, comparable to those of your uh, centralized lab-based PCR tests. The antigen tests are also rapid. Those, there are two currently available that have received emergency use authorization here in the U.S., and those can give results in 15 minutes. Now, the sensitivity of the rapid antigen tests, somewhere in the 80% range uh, compared to PCR. So if you have 100 patients that have COVID, you may miss 15 or 20 of those patients if you test all of them with a rapid antigen test. But there's some discussion about whether if you use an antigen test, that testing patients more frequently, uh, that may help to negate some of the, the loss in sensitivity because it's all about testing a patient when they're shedding the highest amount of virus. And if you happen to test them more frequently, your chances of testing them on a day where their viral load is really high, it goes up. Of course, the challenge there is making sure we have enough tests available to test people more frequently. So it's going to be a, a complex and challenging um, situation to navigate. That's impressive. I can really appreciate, uh, you know, what I'm hearing your answers so far. I mean, highlighting the fact that, you know, all this work that we're hearing about that's being done, this has all been done essentially in 2020 yeah. in months. And here you're talking about there's 100 plus maybe different tests that are out there. Uh, you were just taking us through the, the tests that have uh, most recently re uh, received approval for emergency um, authorization. Right. And so you were also mentioning like the sensitivity and specificity with which us physicians are usually helping, that's helping us interpret what does this result mean. I know all the tests that are being done uh, in this country are being validated as they're coming on. What are these unique challenges uh, with regards to sensitivity and, and specificity when it comes to these sort of rapidly evolving tests? It's a great question. It's probably the most common question that I've received since the beginning of the pandemic, which is, you know, what's the sensitivity of this test? And unfortunately, it's a really complex and challenging question to answer. Um, you mentioned that all labs are validating these tests, and that's true. I think it's important to emphasize that when a lab brings up a test, they're still required to do their validation. And that any of the, the testing that's being done for COVID, whether it's a kit that a lab buys or a lab-developed test that they brought up, 
has to go through that emergency use authorization process. So it's reviewed by the FDA, meets a, you know, a standard. And so I think that that helps kind of reassure that these tests are designed in a way to be as accurate as possible. So on the PCR side, uh, what we've learned is that there's really no way to, to give a simple answer of this is the clinical sensitivity of this test. And I, I know that a lot of providers are wanting to hear it's 97% sensitive, but it all depends on when the test is performed in the patient's disease, what type of sample is tested, and then the quality of the sample and the test itself. So those are really the, those four factors that are kind of considered. If a patient is tested really early on in their disease course, you know, the day of their symptom onset, the day after, there's a lot more virus present at the early stages of the disease. We're actually uh, learning that the virus kind of peaks out almost right before a patient starts developing symptoms. Then the virus starts to decline over the course of the first week in the upper airway. So if a, a patient toughs it out at home and doesn't show up to their physician for uh, testing until day seven or eight, there uh, may not be as much virus in the upper respiratory tract compared to five or six days earlier, so that test may be negative. As the patient progresses into the later stages of disease and if they develop lower respiratory illness and pneumonia, then the upper respiratory samples are a lot less sensitive and samples like a sputum or a bronchlavage or a tracheal secretion have been shown to have a lot higher rates of detection compared to the upper respiratory tract samples. So again, the sensitivity really depends on a number of factors, the big one being the timing of when the, the patient presents for testing. On the serology-based side, Sensitivity all depends again on when the patient is tested. We know that it takes about 10 to 14 days for an individual to develop enough antibodies to be detected by these tests. So if a patient is tested by serology only a few days after their uh, onset of symptoms, the sensitivity of serology is gonna be really low. But we have seen that in individuals that are 14 days or more out from their symptom onset, that our ability to pick up antibodies is you know, approaching 100% in those patients. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. So this is really bringing together kind of a theme that runs through all of our episodes of this kind of connection between laboratory medicine and the clinical practice was you're highlighting careful history and physical is going to help delineate kind of where somebody is in this process. And then if there's any question, providers can certainly call their friendly uh, microbiologist or pathologist at their hospital to discuss, you know, what testing is available or what's recommended in a particular uh, situation until they kind of get uh, that comfort level about where that is. But I, I really like and appreciate your highlighting this kind of back and forth about these are the clinical information, laboratory information. Uh, it's really kind of a marriage to offer what's going to be the best answer for the, the patient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely appreciate when physicians uh, call 
and talk about their patient and, and inquire about the recommendation for testing. What sample type should we use? What test should be used? Should serology be ordered in this individual? In those types of situations, we can really talk through the individual case and decide what the, the right approach is. Because this is a complex virus, a complex disease, and there's really no straightforward individual testing strategy. It, it really has to be kind of tailored by the patient. I appreciate this is the third time that you've been so kind to come back and, and to talk about COVID and give an update for us. And I really appreciate how you've been giving us kind of a, an understanding about how testing has evolved in recent months, uh, what's improved and, and such. I'm curious, what new struggles have emerged when it comes to testing for COVID? Yeah, there's been a lot of challenges. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this virus has only been with us for about seven months. So every day has been a, a learning curve and uh, new information adapting to change. Um, I think some of the biggest change or challenges that we've faced in the laboratory and on the diagnostic side is uh, <clears throat> the supply chain shortages. So labs have really been struggling with keeping enough testing reagents and pipette tips and plastics for the instruments in the lab to be able to do the testing that our patients need. So I think that's something to emphasize and stress is that the labs are really doing the best they can given the circumstances. And then another big challenge is on the molecular side. We have seen that some patients can test positive by PCR for weeks, months. Some patients are testing positive by PCR for 60, 70 days after they were diagnosed. Uh, for weeks after they've recovered from the illness. And initially, there was a strategy of keeping those individuals in isolation or quarantine until we could demonstrate that they were PCR negative, which was leading to a lot of individuals being out of work and potentially away from their family members for prolonged periods of time. We're now learning that those results don't correlate with whether someone is, is likely to be ongoing infectious to others. And so the CDC has recently updated their guidance to say, use more of a symptom-based strategy instead of a test-based strategy. So I think, you know, just to kind of cap it off, you know, the big challenge here has been it's such a new virus and we're learning so much, we're really having to adapt almost on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, uh, as you get in there, I mean, I hear you really kind of talking about um, how we can be educated consumers of this lab testing. And, you know, we certainly have uh, a number of general, uh, general pathologists uh, that are listening to this podcast. And you mentioned earlier about all the different testing options that are out there. What's a thought process that you recommend for folks to think about when, when people are trying to think about what should I offer in my lab or what, how should I offer COVID testing? And as I'm sure you're going to get into, it's really a very much context dependent, but what's, what's the way you think through that process? I think that it's important for physicians and teams who are thinking about COVID testing, which options to bring in house to, to work closely with, their colleagues in the lab to talk through which options um, have advantages, what, what are the limitations and disadvantages of others. Uh, again, this has been a real team approach from the beginning of 
me working with our infectious disease providers and our emergency department providers, and our community health on talking about what are the right, right testing methods, what are the right testing strategies. Uh, you really need the viewpoints and opinions of multiple different specialties to land on the, the right approach. So taking that team-based approach is really important. And then in terms of where do I go to learn about information about testing that's reliable and accurate? There's a lot of misinformation out there. I think the CDC has good information on different testing options. The FDA has a great list of all the uh, approved assays with links to uh, their performance characteristics and what the manufacturer or the developer of those tests showed uh, their performance characteristics to be. So I'd encourage people to go to the FDA website to look at that. And then, of course, you know, if you're a physician and you're wondering about the role of a certain test, looking in the peer-reviewed literature, too, to see if there's been studies done is always a recommended approach to see what data have been published on, on the methods. Um, those are really some of the most reliable sources of information. You've really brought up this, uh, this team dynamic and highlighted the importance of the team. So I'm, I'm just going to... Um throw us in the other direction for just our closing question. I, I wanted to close with, instead of the team approach, if Dr. Benneker, if you were king for a day, what would you make happen for COVID testing? Well, first I'd make COVID go away completely as we're all exhausted and tired. It's a terrible disease and uh, we want nothing more than for the pandemic to end. Um, but focusing on testing, if I were king for a day and really could could make decisions or make something happen in that space. I think I would try to get a better handle on diagnostic stewardship again. I feel like we've, during the pandemic, some, somewhat lost a sense of kind of the lessons that we've learned in the past in terms of appropriate use of testing. I don't think that we're at a point where we're gonna test our way out of the pandemic. And so real, really applying testing in an appropriate way when it's needed, making sure patients who need the testing most get testing, um, I think is, is going to be really important moving forward. And, you know, another thing, as I mentioned earlier, a big struggle is uh, patients are having to remain in isolation for long amounts of time, and I feel for those individuals. So if we could develop a test that would be a really good indicator of whether someone is no longer infectious or a risk to others. I think that's a big gap in somewhere we've got to focus moving forward. Uh, brilliant answers all around. Diagnostic uh, stewardship, I, that's something I think for all of us uh, to reflect on uh, now and then um, as we uh, emerge through this pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Benneker. Glad to be here. We've been rounding with Dr. Benneker today. He's been giving us updates about COVID-19 testing. We thank him for the time to follow up on this topic with us for now the third time. <laughs> if you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at Mayo. Edu and reference this podcast. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect laboratory medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.